let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles. But here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as king. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover land. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself, and they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nation. Series, uh, we're picking up just kind of the first couple chapters of each of these, ch- uh, first couple verses of each of these chapters in in 1 Peter, this small little epistle that's written to the church to remind them of their salvation and their grounding in Christ, and then to help them in the suffering that they're dealing with. And this is a growing suffering that's happening. And you might know if you're in our Revelation study on Wednesday nights that this suffering just keeps increasing in the, in the Roman Empire for Christians. So that's kind of where we're picking this up. Now, I, I'm sending you additional devotional material to work through as I sent you last week to work through. So I thought we'd just go around the room and see who did it this week. Um, to n- no, we won't do that. So you, you were ready, Stephen, weren't you? So yeah. Um, I'm going to send you that this week too so you can work through some of the components of this chapter that we won't get into. And also I'm going to add on Tuesday night, I'm just going to send out a video with a little five-minute teaching on verse 2 and 3 of what we'll read in just a moment here. Because we're going to focus our time in verse 1 today. I'll give you an additional teaching for you to work through. It'll be a five-minute thing. Um, So if you're like, I don't know if I can stomach more of him. This It's five minutes. You can get through it, right? You can make it. Um, And I'll send that out on Tuesday. So you're seeing what our desire is, is for you to get into the Word as well. In fact, um, I was at a conference, and they asked this question from the stage. They said, As a pastor, what would make you most joyful in your people? 
And then and a few answers got thrown around like, um, man, if they would invite others, if they would like share Jesus with others. And I'm thinking, man, we preach that all the time, right? Invite people, share Jesus yourself with others. So yeah, that would make me excited. Um, or if they served and they blessed people throughout the week. So if it wasn't just like, let's wait for the church to do an event and we'll sign up. You know, if you were like actively out there doing it as many of you are, yeah, that would be exciting. But you know, the, the, the thing that popped into my head was not those two. It was if our people would daily engage directly into God's word. Like, I'm not talking about like the quick, you know, the quickie devotionals that are out there. You know, you read one page and there might be a verse attached at the very top. Um, those are fine. But I'm talking about you, you engaging and getting into God's word yourself. Like, that would just bring me such joy to see the whole congregation doing that. Why? Because I believe if you're engaged in God's word and you're asking one simple question at the end of it, if this is the word of God, what would I do different in my life? I think those other things, they would take care of themselves. You'd be, you'd be going around praising God. You'd be serving other people. You'd be inviting people. You'd be sharing Jesus. You'd be doing other things that the word of God tells us to do. So that's why we're jumping in here. We're going to spend a lot of time in verse 1 today, and I'm encouraging you to get into the devotional materials that I send you for the rest of chapter 2 uh, during this week when they go out. So sound good? All right, great. Um, so let me just read this passage. It's 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, three verses that I think are going to be impactful. One verse we'll look at today, 2 and 3, uh, you'll pick up on Tuesday. Let me read it for you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of God for the people of God. So let's just look at this passage this morning. Um, the very first thing you have to pick up on is the word so. That's like a therefore word here. And it's going to tell you something came before this that makes what this verse says important, right? So it's like your parents saying, look, you're going to lose the car for a week. So you should probably be in by 11 o'clock like we told you. Hey, you understand the things that come before that connects. And so there is a thing. We're going to hit that at the end. All right. The so we'll answer that question at the end when we get there. But I want to look at these components because here's what we do. And I've talked about this. Sometimes we take Christian terms that show up in the Bible and we throw them all together in a blender and we just kind of say they, they all kind of mean the same thing. You know, love God, praise God. But in reality, these different words mean something different in how we respond to God and what we do for God and how we react with him. This is similar because now we get these words that are saying, look, don't do this. Don't make this part of your life. And we get this list. And it's easy for you and I to just throw this all together in the bad blender, right? Mix it up and say, well, they all kind of mean the same thing. You know, don't do bad. But we need to look specifically at this because when we look specifically, guess what happens to your life and my life? Well, let me tell you what's happened to my life as I've studied this. And I started looking at this passage six weeks ago to get prepared. It starts to rise to the surface. Things in my own life that go, oh, I identify with that. Oh, I can see where that's sneaking up. When I get specific, 
So what I want to do for you, and it'll feel a little bit like a rapid journey because I want the, the last part to be important as we work through it. I want to walk through these words that are put in this list. I also want to let you know that Peter is not just writing this and going, um, don't do, uh, I don't know, malice. Don't do malice. Um, uh, envy. That's a bad one. Put that on the list. Like This is actually a semi-established list. If you read Paul's writings, you'll see actually two times this kind of list shows up, and it's like 80% the same list that he puts here. We find these components, Jesus speaks into each of these components at several times, and we actually see these show up. We could attach verses if we had the time to these throughout the Old Testament as well. These are significant things in why Peter puts them on this list together. We're talking about a life that's worth it, a life that's worth it, and a life that's worth it is going to put off these things, put away, maybe your translation says, or cast off your translation might say as well. We're going to get rid of these things. They are not of value to you, right? I just cleaned out the top of my closet. Have you ever done this? The copier closet, you don't even know what's up there, right? I didn't. I pulled out boxes, and I had hats, lots of hats, hats that I'd collected a long, long, long time. I had hats with emblems. I can't even remember what the emblem stands for. And so what did I do? I said, these are of no value, for us anymore. So it was time to get rid of boxes of hats. I actually had a little bit of motivation from my wife. I had a lot of bit of motivation from my wife to go through these and get rid of these. Cast off. These are of no value to you anymore. Let's get rid of these. I would guess to say these things on this list of, of more detriment to you and I than a box of hats on top of our closet. So we better work through it here, right? What's the first one he says? Put away all malice. We don't use that word a lot, do you? You know, quit being so malice. You know, we, I, like, we don't speak that. I don't even know if I just used that correctly. Teacher, did I? No, okay. You're a math teacher. Come on. How about you? All right. Put away malice. Kakia is the word in Greek. Here's what it means. Ill harm. Or, I'm sorry, ill will. Harmful intent. Now, do you understand what malice is now? Harmful intent. When I seek to hurt you. Now, we might think in terms of like, you know, physically, when you were little, like, you know, I'll seek to hurt you. I want to punch them. But as adults, we're much wiser and smarter than that, right? Or we think we are. And we find ways for ill will or harmful intent in other ways where we know, like, I'm not going to come out and say, I would like to harm you. But I know what's tracking in my head, what's working. I know what I'm subtly doing, Right? I mean, passive-aggressive sometimes was invented for this type of thing, right? Gossip, name-calling, revenge, or how about just simply hoping for the worse? That would be forms of malice. And Peter includes this to say, look, as a Christian, like, these are actually detrimental things. If we would act this way, if malice became something that was commonplace in our life, we would have trouble in our Christianity matching up. These would be at odds. I'm trying to think of examples. I think our sports teams are our best example of this, right? I, I mean, we say things like, I hate that. A team just popped in your head, right? Some team just popped in your head, right? You know, who are they playing today? I'm, I'm, okay, all right. So that maybe that name popped in your head. Like, I hate that, and you have your team. Some rival team, right? I hate them. 
Now listen, it gets ugly around here at Duke UNC time in basketball season, right? Two nights of the year, last year three nights of the year, you know, it gets, it gets rough. And um, last year we hosted an, a UNC and Duke party here at the church and showed it on the big screen. And I just sat back there in the sound booth and watched and think, oh, yeah, we, we've got some issues, right? <laughs> <laughs> but this is what pops up. I hope they lose. I can't stand them. The fans are the worst. I'm on and on and on. This is what, by definition, what malice is when we think in these terms or we're hoping for the worst in these people. We excuse ourselves in the sports world, do we not? I mean, we kind of like, come on, Tom, you're making too big of a deal. Am I? Or we found a way that we excuse ourselves from that. This is what it is. And the root word, you may not know, the root word is actually the same word for evil, wicked. Now, we talked about this in, the, in, in John. W- wicked is not necessarily, you know, it was contrived in the pits of hell and it surfaced. Um, wicked simply means not of God. If something is not of God, it is wicked. This whole neutral category that we've created, like here's the godly things, here's the devil things, here's the neutral things, not really that bad. This is the PG-13 area, right? This is okay. By definition, anything that's not of God is considered wicked. And this is where the devil lives. This is where the devil actually uses things to help convince us, not that bad, go this way. So when we have ill will or when we practice malice, like we're literally practicing the way of the enemy. That's literally where the enemy wants to take us. If you would think ill of somebody else. If you would seek revenge and let that settle into your spirit, that's a problem. That's not life-giving. And we know God, through Christ as well, is the author of giving life. What's the second word that pops up there? Deceit. Maybe your translation says guile in there, right? I like deceit because we use that word more than we use, you know, guile. Dallas is the word. It means this, intent to trick or deceive. Intent to trick or deceive. Or here's an interesting definition. It means to hide, to hide, to not be vulnerable, for you not to see that as well. Recently, there was a large church in Florida. I'll hold out the name because you will likely, many will know the name of this. You can look up the story, Google on your own, but it's never my desire to air too much from the pulpit. But what happened in this church is the pastor was accused by somebody on his staff of inappropriate relationships with women in the church. There was a whistleblower who shared this. Well, very promptly, she was fired and was given a severance package of two months, but forced to sign an NDA. You know what I'm talking about? A non-disclosure agreement. That was her offer. She refused, which means she didn't get the severance, and she moved on. Later on, it came out very publicly that indeed this happened with multiple women. The pastor was let go, of course. Those on the board resigned as well, and big mess within the church. There was deceit being practiced, not just in the pastor deceiving his congregation by having affairs with women in the church, right? But there was deceit in the sense of, we don't want this to come out and be public. We don't want anyone to know this. And so if you leave this church, we are going to make you sign that you will not even go talk about this with anyone else. That's what we're talking about. That is deceit. That is to hide, to intent to trick or the intent 
to deceive. The root word of, of this guile is decoy, you know, a wooden duck on a lake. It's a fake out. It's a lie. Deceit is like premeditated trickery. Listen, I want to tell you I have never, as your pastor, engaged in anything close to deceit. But as I got to thinking about this, that deceit is like the opposite of honesty and vulnerability. When you just say, listen, I'll just share with you all. This is what it is. And then let you form your thought and your opinions. This this is what deceit can do. It can cause us to look at one another and go, I don't know if that's honest. I don't know if you're tricking me. You don't know if I'm tricking you. That's what deceit eventually does. And it's harmful. In fact, deceit cannot live where honesty and vulnerability are priorities. If there's a priority in the church or among Christians to say, I want to be honest, I want to be vulnerable, we want to be open. In fact, I believe really strongly that if you go to a church that will not turn over their books to you, their financial books, move on from that church. Because you need to know, where is the finances going when you are faithfully paying your tithe, which you, you hear, we, we push on you to do that. Vulnerability, honesty is so important. Deceit is a big problem. So as Christians, honesty has to prevail. Openness is the way of the gospel is what Peter is getting at here. The next word is, it, it's tied in, it's similar, it's hypocrisy. You know this word, right? In fact, sometimes you might say, why do your friends not come? And your friends might say, well, I'm just all the hypocrites in church, right? Sometimes we think that way. And we would probably say, yeah, right on. That's, you know, that's us. We're trying to figure it out. But let's see how we get to that, right? Hypocrisy is the actual Greek word. It means to mask. Halloween's coming up, right? We got trick-or-treat. We're doing here. We're down to just three cars. Did you know that? That we need for trick-or-treat. That's your quick sales pitch, right, for this morning, your quick announcement. Um, so doing great there. We're going to, many of us, we're going to put on masks. We're going to have face pain and this kind of things. We are, by definition, that, that night, many of us are going to be hypocrites that night. That's the definition, to mask. But Jesus, we find in the Gospels, he hijacks this term. And he takes this term and he uses it to describe the religious leaders. And what he's saying to the religious leaders is, listen, you look to be so pious you speak like you are doing God's work the way God would want you to do, but in reality, you are not. You're not doing God's work. You're not doing what God has called a priest, a religious leader to do. So what does Jesus do? He uses the word hypocrite. What's the root word mean? It means to impersonate another, and that would make sense. They're impersonating something that they're not really. So you can see how this word has actually move to the point where it actually means two-faced. When we say, like, we don't call our, our actors hypocrites anymore, do we? Because of what it's come to mean, this word hypocrite. The biggest blow to Christianity is when the person we are on Sunday is not the person we are the other days. It's the biggest blow. It's a blow to your witness, right? And you may deceive for a little while, but eventually it's found out. It's a blow to your friendships at times. Listen, parents, it's a blow to your family. In fact, the number one reason our students walk away from the faith really has, it's not our youth ministry programs. It's not our kids' programs. It's not whether we had young adults or not, you know, or your kid went to camp or didn't go to camp. All those things are of benefit. But the biggest thing is, how did you live out your faith at home as parents? 
when you left this church, how did you live it out? How did you build it into your kids? Listen, the church has, what, your kids for an hour or two a week? You get them all the other hours. That is why living out the faith is so important. It's a blow to yourself as well, because eventually you figure it out. Eventually you're honest with yourself. I'm not, I'm not who I say I'm being. That can actually be a positive turning point when you catch that. The next word on the list is envy, that we would not envy, desire. Farness is the word. It means jealousy or spite. It's more than just, man, I really wish I had that. It is spite. I really wish I had that, and I'm a little ticked at you because you do, and I don't, right? That's kind of this edge of of envy. In fact, it shows up in two verses for, for you there. These are the same exact verses they show up in Matthew and in Mark. Let me read the one in Matthew f- to you. This is when they have arrested Jesus. Pilate had looked at Jesus. He, God, Pilate had come up with no reason to give, to, to not release Jesus, but the crowd and the religious leaders kept pushing on him, and so you know the story. Um, he gave Barabbas a release and said, Jesus went to the cross. It says in verse 18 of Matthew 27, he knew that the leaders of the people, those are the, the religious leaders, had handed him Jesus over because of jealousy or envy. Same word shows up here. So even the religious leaders, they have this jealousy of Jesus's influence, and they knew they needed to do away with him. Can you see that? Listen, you probably have never had envy to the point where you went to try to get somebody arrested and crucified, right? But how does envy sneak up in our lives? The root word, to destroy. Like an internal to destroy. That's what jealousy and envy is. It destroys things. It destroys relationships, your relationships with others. When you are jealous or you have envy or spite in somebody, how many times you're like, oh, I'd love to get together with you. Let's go to the movies. It'll be great. It's very hard to have that relationship when you allow spite and envy into the picture. It destroys influence with others. How do you witness and share Jesus when there's envy and spite? It destroys self as well. In fact, the victim of jealousy is most often ourselves. There's a final word that shows up in this list, and I think it's a significant one to look at. It's the word slander. Catalilia is the word, and it means just this, evil speaker. Like, slander is evil speaking. Like, it's speaking to defame. It's purposely speaking in this way. Here's what we like to do sometimes, is we say, well, it's, if it's true, Right? As if, if I speak something that is actually true, it is okay to slander. Why? Because our definition of slander is often this, is whether it's true or not, it's, it's like this, is if it's not true, if I'm saying it about you and it's not true, that's slander. But if I'm saying it to you and it's true, that's, that's just me speaking the truth, right? And like, don't I have an obligation to speak the truth, Right? But unfortunately, that's not the way the Bible defines it. That's not the way the New Testament looks at it with here. It's when you look to defame somebody or you look to speak evil to them, right? Something that's not from God that you want to speak them. That is slander. We speak of people. 
The root word will help us even more. It actually means to devalue. When you seek to devalue someone with your words, that's slander. To bring about dying. When I seek to actually not speak life, but I'm going to speak something that's harm or speak death into someone, that is slander. That's when we're looking to do this. When we seek to villainize someone. Have you been watching political ads during this season? Do you just love them? No, you probably don't love them at all, right? In fact, you probably stream most of your stuff during this season, so you don't have to watch political ads, right? But they're there every day. And, I mean, they villainize everything. They are nonstop slander for the most part, unless the candidate puts them out, and then they're the greatest hero of all time, right? In fact, here's a fun little thing. It's not fun at all. In fact, my, my family's sick of it. But we watch Will of Fortune and Jeopardy with my mother-in-law who's staying with us. She loves it. So we sit around and we watch it. It's time that we spend together. And so my little exercise in the last few weeks has been to watch political ads like every single one of them is 100% true. So if it's a good ad, I just cheer them on and say, yeah, that's, that's what we're looking for. You know, that's it. And then if it's a bad one, I go, oh, you radical Ricky, what are you doing? You know, that kind of, yeah, the family's sick of it too. But <laughs> it's, it's like, that is the definition of slant. That's what we're talking about when you villainize, when you defame, when you speak evil into those people. And our, our ads are full of them. When one slanders, they're actually setting up a caste system. Did you know that? You're setting up a system where you say, I'm here you're here. That's what we do when we slander. I'm up here. You see the difference? You know, see the difference in here? Well, you know, like now I do, now that you've explained it. So yeah, that's what we say. I'm up here. You're down here. That's what we're speaking into people. And so slander is the opposite of speaking life. The opposite of what Jesus came to do. Speak life into people. Don't confuse slander with correction. Right? If you had to get on your kids because they disobeyed or they did something and you need to speak correction, even if you did it at a slightly elevated volume, right, parents, um, that's not slander. Speaking correction, it's a completely different thing. You know what we're talking about here when we speak to defame. So these things are so important. They show up on this list of Peter, and he speaks hard, and he's saying, look, you've got to put these off. You've got to put these off. Listen. The most important thing when we read scripture is to ask, if this is the word of God, what would I do differently? Where do you find yourself in here, in these things that we just read? If you were honest with yourself, and you don't have to stand up here and say it, but would you say, man, I get caught up in some of those things? Or I've done that, but I ju I've justified that, and here's how I've justified it. I need to step back and reevaluate. Here's what I want to do before we share this last part. I just want to stop and pray. I want us to pray. This is something I've done in my office as preparing for this. I want us to stop and pray, and I'm going to allow you to pray forgiveness and repentance, to just go to God and confess in this time. You don't have to do it out loud. It's just you talking to God, right? Just, just offer confession, ask the Lord to forgive you. He does, and say, I repent of this. This is not the way I want to go, to cast off as Peter is encouraging us to do. So let's just pause before we hit this last part on holiness, and let's pray confession and forgiveness. Father, hear our words. Lord, hear where we identify <laughs> with this list, where we would say, I've fallen into that. I allow that to sneak into my life. Sometimes I even do it daily, Lord. Would you now hear in these quiet moments 
would you hear confession and would you offer forgiveness to everyone here? Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. May you help us to repent, to turn away, to walk in a different direction, to put these off, to leave them, to cast them aside, to walk in different ways that you have empowered us through your spirit. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I hope that was a a beneficial time there. I hope that's something you'll revisit as you look at this passage. So why is this so important? Well, this is actually really important for something that comes at the end of chapter one, that if you work through it, these might be familiar verses to you. Let me read them to you and what happens in verse 13 of chapter one. Peter writing says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, you need to do something, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So focus fully on what Jesus has done and given. As obedient children, that phrase alone is impactful. As obedient children. Parents, you know what obedient children is? You know what that looks like. That is what he's calling us to be. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former self. Don't keep doing what you used to do before you leaned on the grace of Jesus Christ. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your what? Conduct. Maybe your, verse, your translation says actions. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. A life worth it is a life of holiness. It's a life of holiness. Just recently, I was hearing somebody speak and they spoke on holiness and they rightfully call holiness set apart. That's what the word actually means, to be set apart. But the rest of what they said is being set apart by God, and you have no action in it. You have no place in it yourself. And as I looked at it, I said, that's only part, that's only half of biblical holiness. Biblical holiness is this. The first thing is being set apart by God. We actually find this in Deuteronomy 7, 6. It's in your notes so you can look it up. Where God is talking about making us holy by setting us apart. It's God's doing because he calls us holy, because we are his chosen people. In the Old Testament, we have the Israelites, but now grafted in, you and I is what we learn in the New Testament. There is a calling on you and I, and because of that calling to be his child, you and I are deemed holy by him. But the second part of holiness is you are set apart for God. And 2 Timothy is a great example of this here, where 2 Timothy 2 tells us about our place in it. So if anyone washes filth off themselves, they will be set apart. That's holy. That's the word for holy as special. For they will be useful to the owner of the mansion for every sort of good work. And that's a metaphor of God. So this second part of holiness is that you set yourself apart for God. 
that God looks to you and says, you are set apart for me. I see you as holy. And the second part is you set yourself apart for God as well. Those two things work together as holiness. Meaning when you set yourself apart, you look and say, I'm not going to be caught up in malice. I'm not going to be caught up in hypocrisy and deceit you know, and slander. That's not going to be, I'm going to set myself apart from those things because God has something different for me. God's called me to something different. That's our part. The first is God's part, and that is our part. A.W. Tozer writes it this way, to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Here's the paradox of holiness. We are declared holy, and yet we pursue holiness every day. There is this declaration of who you are in God, but then there is this drive for us every day in our actions, in our conducts, in our desire. That's our part. That's why this is so important here, that we look at these things and not just say, well, I'm set apart from holiness. Why do I have to worry about malice and hypocrisy and these type of things? God already looks at me as holy. God says, no, 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 there's, there's two parts of this. There's your response to this as well. And these things don't help. So choose holiness. Choose the way of God. Choose the heart of God in this. This is where I'm going to stop because I'm going to pick this up this week when you look at your devotional material and the five-minute teaching that tells us now, verse 2 and 3, where we go with this thing. Let me pray for you. (coughs) Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word that you speak into things, sometimes things that we've let slip into our life. We've become normal behavior and almost sometimes justified behavior. Father, forgive us of that. But Lord, we want to be holy. And we know holiness doesn't mean we're perfect. One day we'll get perfect. But it means that we're set apart by you and we're setting apart ourselves for you. Father, if there be anyone in here that that concept is brand new this morning, I pray they would just clutch it and grab it and own it and say, I want to set myself apart for God. And Lord, in that We'll be challenged with things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Father, speak into us. And Father, may we walk forward in your spirit, in your grace, as it's said in the word today. We pray in your son's name. Amen.